We can open our Bibles once again, open them this time to Genesis chapter 3. We'll read the first five verses of Genesis 3 as our text for this morning. It's Genesis 3, starting at the first verse. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Thus far, our text. Congregation of Christ, many of us look at our world and we wonder how it came to be as broken as it is. In a sense of irony, there's enough good in our world to make us wonder how the world in general can be so bad. What happened to us that the human race would face such misery and suffering? What is our problem? And many people have tried to answer the question of what is the human problem. Some say that our problem as human beings is that we need to be more committed to doing good. We need to try harder. And people who feel this way are often disappointed that other people around them don't try harder to be good. Others say that our problem is that we haven't built a good enough society or, or a wise enough government. If only people were given the tools and the support, then they would always do the right thing. The reason people are so bad is because the government has made an unjust society. Some even say that the problem is that we are not religious enough. If only we would go to church more often and adopt spiritual practices, and read the scriptures, and maybe meditate more, then the darkness could be restrained and we'd become good people. But today our text is Genesis 3, the first five verses. And this is the first sermon in a three-part series on Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, we are given the historical account of things how things actually went wrong. And in this particular text, the first section of Genesis 3, we see and discover how the serpent's deception initiates and reveals what our problem is and how it came to be what it is. And the argument or theme today is going to be that our true problem, as the serpent shows us, is that the serpent invites us to be judge over God or to be God instead of God, we could say. 
We'll see today that he had two main strategies for convincing us to do so. Number one, he wanted us to question God's motives. And number two, he wants to encourage our pride. And what Satan did to Eve in the garden is temptation to her is the temptation he offers every single day to every one of us. So let's look at that today and see how Eve's experience informs our own. Let's start at verse 1 of Genesis 3. And as we start in verse 1, let's remember where Adam and Eve live. They live in the Garden of Eden. They have uninterrupted communion and worship with God. They are naked. They have complete trust in each other, complete union and love with each other without a shadow of doubt. They live in total bliss. Every creature on the planet serves them. The trees and plants produce fruit for them to eat without labor required, although they do labor. And best of all, Adam and Eve live in freedom, true freedom. They have the freedom to live a good life in the garden and in the earth in whichever way they see fit. Every choice that they make, either way, is good. This is the true meaning of freedom, you see. To be able to make choices, and both choices are always good. There's only one limit to the freedom of Adam and Eve. One boundary that they must not cross. They must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, they are not to know or do evil. That's the limit of their freedom. That is a choice they cannot make. Now you might ask, well, what's evil? They did not know what evil was. The tree itself is called the knowledge of good and evil. They did not know what evil was. Well, evil was about to meet them in Genesis 3, verse 1, as the devil walks into the garden. Look what it says there. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent. Is this a literal snake? Yes. But also more. It's a snake inhabited by the devil. We see that in Revelation 12, verse 9, where it says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. So the devil is living in this serpent. He's become the serpent, and he's now going to speak to Eve. The devil is crafty. He uses wisdom, which is created to enrich humanity, and he turns it against people. He uses wisdom to manipulate and ensnare people rather than to lift them up. And God gave humanity language so that communication could occur between him and man and between man and woman. And now Satan uses language and he perverts that too. He uses language to bring confusion and to gain control rather than to be an instrument of union and relationship. Now we might ask, well, how did Satan get into the bliss of the garden anyway? Why didn't God stop him? Well, we don't really know the answer to that question. We're not given that answer. But we do know how Satan, we know a little bit about how Satan became so cunning and evil and crafty. Where did he come from? Well, In Ezekiel 28, we read about Satan's fall. Satan was created good as an angel, and he fell. 
In Ezekiel 28, we read a, a passage of seems to be about Satan. It's actually about the king of Tyre originally, but it, it really, we believe it, it is about Satan. Verses 2, verse 13, and verse 17 comment on this. Verse 2, In the pride of your heart you say, I am a god. So in pride, pride is to think, I'm a god instead of God. This is how Satan thought and thinks. Now verse 13, But you are a mere mortal and not a god, though you think you are as wise as a god. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And this is how we know this passage is about Satan. Now verse 17. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. This is an account, a, a prophecy of how Satan fell. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom as you said, I'm going to be God instead of God. Fascinating that Satan's fall is a precursor to our own fall. And of course, Satan's evil and his rebellion breeds jealousy. When he sees that the man that God has created and how much God loves this man and this woman, he needs to destroy it. He needs to get back at God. But Satan is cunning enough to know that he cannot destroy men. God would not allow that. Now what Satan is going to try to do is he's going to try to drive a wedge between God and man. He's going to have man rebel so that God has to destroy man. You see, that is our true problem, eh? Now that we've sinned, God has to destroy us. Our true problem is the wrath of God, not sin. Sin is obviously a problem. And Satan aims first at the woman, not the man. And this is deliberate. Satan deliberately is always trying to overturn anything that God has created and set in place. And the order of authority in the garden is that the man is created and the woman is to be his helper. And right away Satan sees a possibility of injustice. Perhaps he can convince Eve that God has been unjust unjust by placing her in such a position. It's a profitable avenue of attack. You see, justice is at the core often of how Satan is going to tempt Adam and Eve to think that God does not have their best interests. Perhaps the woman should make decisions. Isn't it unjust that she's not the one who should be making all of the decisions? Isn't it unjust that he's, she's only a helper? Perhaps God has made a mistake. This is part of Satan's temptation. We know that because of the later punishment on Eve has everything to do with this. That's in the later sermon. But the serpent expands on his theme of injustice in his cunning first question. Look at this question. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Wow. 
did God actually say? This is no ordinary question, brothers and sisters. No innocent query designed to elicit information that Satan did not have. No, this is a question that's very leading. Well, let me work through a few reasons why this question is so deliberate. First, Satan in this question deliberately misstates God's actual command. Look what he says. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. God had not said that. God said that you, Eve, Adam and Eve should not eat of one tree. But now Satan expands and misstates the command in order to emphasize the, the negative and the prohibition of God's command to make God seem harsh. Instead of focusing Eve's attention on the gift of all the trees, no, now it's about, hey, God has limited you. Satan's goal is to distort Eve's perspective. That is how all sin begins. A slight distortion of perspective. Things that weren't plausible before now seem plausible. Now second, the serpent turns God's command into a question. As if God's word should be discussed rather than obeyed. Eve is invited into the world's first theological discussion. Eve is invited to analyze God rather than worship him and talk to him in prayer. She's going to now talk about God rather than with him. You see, I think this is something we have to talk about. Do you see how theological discussions can just as easily be a path away from God rather than to him. God is not an object in a Petri dish to be studied and analyzed as if we are the boss over him. His words aren't really up for discussion as if we have the right to sit in judgment on them. As soon as you talk about God and you put him in the Petri dish, you implicitly adopt a posture of doubt rather than faith. You assume that doubting God is the logical position and that his words should prove themselves to you. Your mind is the center of what's true and not true. And you're going to decide whether God's words have anything to say to you. Here's a commentary. He said this. He said, where human beings use a principle, an idea of God, as a weapon to fight against the concrete word of God, well, then a human being is from the outset already in the right. If you're using a principle other than God to judge God, then you've become God's master. You've left the path of obedience. You've withdrawn from being addressed, and now you think you can address God. Ah, oh, and Satan's very clever here. Eve, it's up to you. You judge. I think, brothers and sisters, this way of working with Eve is the same way that Satan works with you now. Everything that Eve experienced, you experience now too. Satan's methods have not changed. 
Just as he wanted Eve to fall and the whole human race to fall, so he wants you to fall. And how do you think he's doing it? Satan is working in your life right now asking the very same questions. Christian, does God really mean what he says? Don't you think God's a little harsh with that prohibition on you know, sex outside of marriage? Eh. Pornography is not that bad. Who is God to tell you that you shouldn't look at a picture? I mean, come on. You know, whatever. You know, does God's word even call that out anyway? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. Or another obvious example could be the participation in homosexuality. Because many claim that when God calls homosexuality a sin, he doesn't really mean it. I mean, think about how the, the devil wins in that instant. Or those of us who claim that we don't need a church. I can be a Christian without a church. It's very common in Brampton. I can live independently of the body of Christ. Or maybe I am a member of the church, but I keep myself at a distance from everybody else because I don't really need them. I can live my life on my own steam. Meanwhile, the rest of the word of God militates against that position. Satan is winning. If that's what you think. If none of your brothers or sisters know anything about you, Satan has won. He's convinced you of something that's bad for you. And he's convinced you to doubt God's actual word. Who do we think that we are to be the judge of God's word or not? You know, and I'm no different. The pastor, you see, has unique struggles, or the same struggles most of the time. You know, God's word says that the pastor, in a sense, Paul Paul says this, right? He says, I give myself out as a drink offering for the church. I sacrifice myself for the sake of the people God has given. Do I, as a pastor, have a right to say, no, 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 I... I give this, in this little box, this is what I give, and the rest of my life is for me. It's not to say that I overwork myself, but the point is this, is there a limit? Do I get to decide what my role is, or does God decide? It's no different for me, or if you're an elder, or a deacon, or anything. Who are we to think that we get to define the parameters of our own existence? We don't. But Satan wants you to think you can do that. Because then he wins. Now, third. The serpent invites Eve to doubt God's motives. The serpent is trying to say to Eve, is trying to convince her, God is holding out on you. God is denying you something, Eve, that you deserve. God does not have your best interests at heart. And because God doesn't have your best interests at heart, you need to take things into your own hands and get what you want. God doesn't love you like he says. He does his love for you is fake. You don't know God like you think you Let me help you know God better, Eve. Again, this is a deadly question, brothers and sisters. 
Because Satan is also asking you this question. Do you trust that God is sincere in your life? Do you, are you here in church today completely trusting God, that God has your best interests at heart? Because if you doubt God's motives, then sin is crouching at your door. Doubting God's motives is the beginning of all sin. Along with pride, but we'll get to that. All sin or unbelief implies the assumption that God does not love me and does not have my best interests at heart. How many of us have done something and said, well, God's not going to give me what I want, so I'm going to take it. I mean, here's a simple example would be tithing. I can't give 10% of my income away because God has not made me wealthy enough to have all the things that I want. So I need to take matters into my own hands and keep my money from my own hands because God is not giving me what I... He's not good for me. All sin starts there. And it's also worth pointing out here that at first, sin often sounds pious. Sin is never easily recognizable at first. That line between sin and good is not is so easy. It starts down here in the heart, and in your heart, it, it's not so clear at first. It's usually later that we begin to realize the consequences of what we've done. There ought to be a holy terror of what sin can do to you. Now, look at how innocent and pious Satan seems in the garden. That is how he will approach you. He's just trying to help Eve understand God better. What could be wrong with that? The possibility of being against, the possibility of disobeying God is veiled under the possibility of being for God. By the way, this is always. People often wonder, they say, well, you know, you, you watch other churches, even in the town of Alora, and a lot of churches have gone liberal. Why? Do you think that someone walked into these churches 50 years ago and someone walked in and said, hey, everybody, you need to deny your beliefs in the Trinity, you need to deny your beliefs in the resurrection, and you need to today believe that gay rights. Do you think somebody walked into church and just announced all that stuff? No. That's it started way previously in seminary somewhere where someone said, ah, I think the resurrection just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I, I don't think God wants me to, to, to believe what God actually says in his word about the resurrection. It's, anybody, and it, just, it just snowballs from there. And slowly over time, the frog is boiled. Now you might say, well, how do we, how do we, how do we, this is scary. How do I, how do I combat this? Well, you don't combat this by becoming more conservative. Conservatism in itself, conserving the past, is a loss. The past will not save you in itself. The gospel saves you. And sometimes the, the past and the conservatism can be the very thing that, that brings you away from God because it's essentially human. No, 
You need to know God's word inside out. You need to bow before him and, and be in earnest prayer with him, constantly begging him. You need to believe in Jesus Christ and follow him. And, and you need to live your life in such a way that Jesus Christ is everything to you that, and that this thing is known by you. That's how every generation guards the gospel. The past can be a guide to that, but it itself is not enough. Every generation needs to search the word out and know it inside and out and listen to preaching and and fight. Anything less than that, it's not enough. The thing is that God saves us. And so each generation's answer to Satan has to be to run to God and, and bow before his feet and worship him and give your life, everything to him because he's the one who's going to save you from whatever's coming. But let's go to our second point, encouraging our pride. Now Eve responds to Satan by quoting God's command. She says here, she requotes God's command back to the devil, and she said, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And so she faithfully recounts what God says. There's debate over whether she gets this wrong or right. It's not clear to me whether... It seems that she just says the right thing and that's all there is to the matter. But Satan doesn't care about this. He's now going to go for round two, verse four. He says, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. And the, the Hebrew, I think, is best understood this way It is not certain that you will die. Uh, we're not sure about that. What God said, well, it's not clear. Maybe. And Satan, it's clever because it's not really a lie. It is true that Adam and Eve don't die after they sin. Not immediately. And yet they do die later. And so Satan, he just sort of muddies this up a little bit. He's helping us understand God a little bit better again. Well, it's not clear if God's really truthful or not. And then the hook in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, and here's the core. Here's the the thing that Satan's going to sink into the mouth of the fish. And here we, we have to ask the question, when Eve takes the fruit, what is it? What is she doing? Is it rebellion against God or disobedience? Yes. But it's deeper than that too. Or is it unbelief? Yes. But deeper. You see, fruit, more than anything, is the lure of pride. It's the vision of being more than we actually are. What is pride? Biblically, pride is to think more highly of yourself than you ought. The fruit is the vision that man can be God instead of God. That man can have live with no limits. That man, and here's the real pride, that man can subject God to his desire. 
Man should be judge over God or God over God. That's sin. The great church father Augustine once said, he said, pride is the beginning of all sin. We know that it was pride that overthrew the devil. We saw that in Ezekiel 28. Augustine also says, whoever seeks to be more than he is becomes less. And perhaps that line encapsulates sin better than anything else. In our desire to become more, we've diminished ourselves and become less. And Satan's statement here can be translated this way. God knows that you, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And, and he says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we could say it this way. You will be like divine beings, knowers of good and evil. This is the thing that the fruit will give you, Eve. The fruit will give you what you don't have, divinity. And you know what? You deserve it. God's reasons for denying you divinity are selfish on his part. And taking the fruit will help you help God with his selfishness. Of course, you might ask yourself the question at this point, and I think many human beings do ask the question, why am I called proud and God isn't? How is God not proud? Isn't he more than what he should be? If God was humble, wouldn't he let me be God too? This is how far the distortion of sin can get. Or we become the judge of everything and we become the center of what's true and what's not true, even though we are a created being. We can't even create a thumb. Human beings, the surgeons, still can't create, recreate the human thumb. Yet God created this and the rest of this and the whole world, and we think we can be judge over him? But again, this pride, it afflicts us now that we're sinful. I, again, I'd, I'd pose the question to all of us today. Do you realize that you're this proud? That you're you inclined to this level of proud? I'd ask yourself a question, you know. Do you obey God instantly? Do you agree with every single word in the Bible and are reserved to do that Whatever the Bible says, no matter what, does that live in your heart? And just as a simple judge of pride, or, or a simple standard, does your life perfectly conform to God's will? Do you 100% trust that God loves you in every single way? Because if you don't, then pride lives in your soul. The delay between the word preached and obedience is pride writ large. We are proud beings. And that pride leads us away from God. Now, I pose the question, right? Is God holding out on us? Is God God unjust and unfair? Well, this is a question we really ought to ask ourselves and a question that we should look at Genesis 3 to see what its answer is. How do we know that God is 100% for us 
in every single way, and that his motives for us are 100% pure, that he loves us so much that he puts us first instead of himself, that his creation of us was for our highest good, not our second highest good? How do we know that God is that kind of God? Well, you might say, God's word will tell us. Well, that's true. But there's a little more to it than that, eh? You know what? It's God's actions that will really show whether his word is true. You know that? God's actions after the fall into sin will show us whether God is who Satan says he is or is God who God says he is. So let's look at what happens after the fall. Okay? What does God do? Well, at first, after the fall, we see that God punishes Adam and Eve in paradise. And then he, he removes them from paradise. And they're never allowed to come back because the tree of life is in paradise and they could have eternal life somehow if they were had access to it. And it seems that at first, God is vindictive and controlling. God has punished Adam and Eve. Look at him. He's the cruel, nasty God. Satan is right. But then there's verse 15. Verse 15, you can read it with me, says something strange. Part of God's punishment on the serpent is this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What? Why does it say that the woman is going to have offspring, children? And why does it say that the woman's children will defeat the serpent? What does that mean? That doesn't seem like a punishment to me. Eve's going to have children? Who is the child that she's speaking of, or he's speaking of? And suddenly we begin to realize that this child, the whole Bible is unfolding the story of how this promise comes true. And the great story of Scripture is that a child is going to come and he's going to defeat the devil and he's going to liberate all of humanity from its sin and he's going to die on a cross to do that. The Son, Jesus Christ, will defeat the devil not through violence, but through death. His own death, his own sacrifice, where he takes the wrath of God onto himself so that now God is no longer angry with human beings, but he can now show grace to them and gather them to himself. And those human beings can be invited into eternity to once again live in the, what's the Garden of Eden, except for now it's the New Jerusalem, a city. And so it would seem that by God's actions, God shows that the devil is wrong. God is willing to do whatever it takes to show you love. He's willing to give up his own son to prove to you and to show you and to to chase you, to run after you, because that's how far he's willing to go to pursue your highest good. That's how far his love goes. It doesn't even stop at the death of his own son. So is God who Satan says he is? I think not. Because Satan is willing to give you nothing. He wants to destroy you. But God comes to you with the death of his only son. That's how he approaches you. So, 
when you are looking at your life and you're judging whether you should take life into your own hands, just think for a second. If God is willing to give me his own son, are his commands for me possibly bad for How could they be bad for me? Aren't they a reflection of his heart, which is for me in every single way? So why would I choose a path other than his commands? There's no way it can be good for me. You know, it gets worse, eh? Jesus comes to earth, and what happens to him? The Jewish religious leaders judge him. They sit in judgment over him. They slap him in the face. Pontius Pilate judges him, even though Pontius Pilate admits that Jesus is innocent. The crowds judge him by calling for his death. The disciples judge him as not worth saving as they run away. And everybody says, God himself comes to earth, Satan's dream, and here in that moment, all of humanity says, gets what they want. Humanity wants to kill God. And here's God in the flesh, and humanity says, yes, let's put him on a cross. Let's kill him. But finally, this is our chance. See, brothers and sisters, every time you sin, every time you choose sin, you're effectively saying that you hope God would, be, would die, because he's the one in your way. Every time you sin, you question God's authority in your heart, and you effectively say, I deserve to be God instead of God. And that attitude leads to the cross. That's what put Jesus on the cross. You participated in that. But the contrast is massive, because the contrast, human beings who want to kill God versus God who's rescuing them by letting them kill God, No, the contrast is a God who's going to save the people who want to kill him. Not only is he going to save them, he's going to send them children. He's going to give them gifts. He's going to give them wealth. He's going to give them peace to live in. God's going to express his love for us, and he's going to do so in a hundred different ways. And he's busy doing so right now with the preaching of the gospel to your heart. God is not like us. And he is the judge over us, and he will be the judge on the final day. Make no mistake. But on that day when he sits in judgment upon us, instead of actually judging us and throwing us into the chambers of hell, Jesus, his son, will say, hey, he or she belongs to me. Let them come to me and sit on my right hand and come with me into eternity. And you and I will be standing there going, we do not deserve that. We deserve to die. And Jesus will say, don't. Don't. Come with me. I die for such as these. That's who God is. Satan is wrong. God is not holding out on you. God is willing to give you everything and more, including himself. So brothers and sisters, today, worship your God and know him. Bow before him and make him yours. Nothing is better than knowing Jesus Christ, his son. Amen.